This is an ABC podcast. When I think of the avalanche, I feel cold all over. It still provokes a reaction within me that makes me stuck between freeze and flight. I'm Elizabeth Kulas. Welcome to Days Like These. Going backpacking is a rite of passage for many Australians. It's an opportunity to explore the world on a shoestring, make connections with people that you'd never meet in your own backyard, see things that make your heart stop. So when two friends buy a one-way ticket overseas, they're supposed to have the time of their lives, the big adventure before settling down to all the things that encompass real life. Today, our reporter Monica O'Hanlon brings us a story of what happens when it all goes wrong, as a quest for new experiences turns into a fight for survival. In 2015, Athena and her friend Nairi, both fresh out of uni, were three days into hiking the Langtang Trek in Nepal. Having spent the night in Langtang Village, they set out to reach the highest point of their trip, Kanjan Gompa. Ganjan Gumpa is this really interesting village. When you're making your way there, you're actually going through quite rocky terrain. You've sort of entered a higher altitude away from the mossy forests and away from all the fairy tale scenes. You've still got that incredible glacial running river next to you. You never leave that in Langtang Valley. It's always right there. The sound is always right there. As you make your way into Kanjan Gompa, it's quite bouldery and going across the last swing bridge covered in all those beautiful bright Tibetan flags. You've got this huge glacier actually on your left, which is just the most exquisite icy blue. And then you come over a ridge and the village opens up in front of you with all of these jewel-coloured buildings. And we were greeted by one of the locals who was loitering on the edge of town in hopes of of nabbing someone to come and stay at their hotel. And so we followed them through to a little tea house that was right on the riverside edge of the village, further away from the mountains, but still with a beautiful view down valley. We were there at this point well into spring, so there was no snow down where we were. A little bit up on the peaks, but not, not for us down on the ground. And... While we'd left Langtang in a beautiful, sunny, bright day, we'd actually got into Kanjangompa as the weather was setting in a little bit. It was unseasonably foggy. After three days of hiking, Nairi and Athena are tired. They're also keen to explore this new area, so they make the uncommon choice to stay for two nights in Kanjangompa rather than the usual one. Waking up on the morning of the 25th of April, we took one look out the window and knew it was not going to be an extensive hiking day. The weather was still set way in. The clouds were super low on the mountains, all the way down the valley. No point in hiking up any peaks of any size if we were only going to be looking out at clouds. We did potter around the village a little bit, but after that we settled into our hotel where it was warm and dry and just waited for lunchtime to roll around. I looked up across the room 
at Nairi because I heard this sound and I realised that somehow the wind outside had gotten so strong that the building was moving, which is outrageous because we were in a two-storey brick building. And she looked up at me and put into words what was happening before I even had a chance to realise it. And she just yelled out, Earthquake. And we just threw down everything in our hands and sprinted. And popped straight out of that room, bouncing down the hallways, bouncing off the walls, practically falling down the stairs until we got to the front front door of the hostel. And I actually braced myself in the doorway because some dim part of my brain remembered that in the event of an earthquake, you should seek out strong structures like door frames. And I was there, jammed in the doorway, staring out onto an open yard that was perfectly safe for probably a good few seconds before I realised that that was a better place to be and rushed out into the yard with Nairi behind me. And we just stood there. and watched things around us rumbling and crumbling. The kitchen house that was next to our tea house was shedding bits of rock and slate-like scales. They were just coming off the roofs. And this sound, you're literally hearing the sound of two pieces of the planet shifting against each other. You just exist inside that sound with absolutely no time for the duration of that earthquake. And then when it all finished... We were just standing there. And we were, we were still and we were fine. And we raced up to this open area nearby our hotel where a whole lot of other people had gathered in the open. And turning to Nairi and opening my hands out towards her as if to move towards her and say, like, oh, my God, we just, we just lived through an earthquake isn't this incredible and we're still here. I just remember having that kind of feeling within me when we heard another sound and this one was much lower and more urgent and everyone's eyes just turned to the west toward the mountainside and we watched as this cloud of, my brain said smoke, cut below the level of the fog and I just remember standing there thinking how bizarre it was that this smoke was coming down the mountain before someone else yelled out avalanche and I thought I'm about to die this is actually where I die We took off and bolted from where we'd been standing. I don't even know what kind of internal compass took me back around the side of our hotel. I don't know if I was smart enough to be running away from the avalanche or just running back in a direction that I understood. But I hurtled back past the hotel door to the far side of the building, which was the further side from the mountain. And just as I tucked in behind that wall, I turned around and realised I didn't know where Nairi was. And at that moment, she rushed past me and I just recall screaming her name, reaching forward and grabbing her and then absolute chaos descending. Just this wall of white blasting past us. 
cowering against the back of that two-storey wall and just trying to make myself one with it so that there was less of me that could be taken out by any of the solid forms that were rushing past me at that time. And I remember turning back and realising that Nairi was hanging back from the wall and just screaming at her that she needed to get against the wall and watching this rock easily the size of my fist come hurtling down from somewhere above us, somewhere stories above us and smacking her across the back of the head. So I pulled her in toward the wall and just held my arms above our heads, thinking of everything I'd ever read about if you find yourself caught in an avalanche, raise a hand above your head someone can see that you're buried. Make a pocket for air so that when you're covered in snow you can still breathe. At some point I realised that all of the white noise wasn't really happening around us anymore and things had kind of settled. I looked next to us and realised there was another woman right there by us and I had no idea how long she'd been there, another tourist, and she had this short hair that had been blasted sideways by the force of the wind and was held in place with this kind of icicle hair gel and she was just calling out for her husband I thought, well, if the noise has stopped, then we can probably, probably come out now. So we crept back around the side of our hotel, found a lot of people from, from that group that we'd seen right after the earthquake. So we gathered in the lobby of the tea house where we'd been staying, which was still quite intact on the ground floor. And I realised that the thing we probably needed most, Nairi and I, at that point in time, was our shoes because, of course, we'd been in bed and so we'd run out without our shoes. We had nothing on us. It is true that in the event of an emergency, you don't grab your handbag. You really just run. So we had Nari sat down on the steps in the lobby and with some something pressed against her head and it didn't appear to be bleeding too much but it had definitely been cut. She had copped some kind of rock or brick. So we kept her sat on the stairs while I went up to see if I could find any of our things. Our room had been the very first one in the corner facing toward the mountains. And even though we were in a point of the village that was further away from the mountains, all of the rocks from the uh, eave of the roof had fallen into the room. I was able to find someone to help me break into the thin plywood of the wall and sort of arch that forward so that we could climb through. But the rock was at such a depth that there was no way we could get our bags, our passports, our money, all of our clothes were buried there. But I had been sitting on the bed next to my camera and when I flicked back the blanket in amongst all the rubble that was still on that bed, my camera was sitting there completely intact. So I left the room with the camera, took our shoes from the hallway, and that was everything that we had with us, other than ourselves. Luckily, the stone which had hit Nairi's head had been more of a glancing blow. If she'd been at home, she would have got a few stitches. But for now, she was okay. All we could think about was getting away from there, and it seemed logical to head south, to head out of the valley, to head away from the destruction. And 
the nearest large spot, a couple of hours' trek down valley, was Langtang Village. So knowing that it was larger, knowing that there was a casual army camp there, we thought there's going to be ways to make contact with the outside world if we can just get there. And people might be able to take care of us if we can just get there. As we left Kanjangompa, we still didn't really know what we were leaving. The village itself was in a massive state of disrepair. Many were missing roofs. There were walls crumbled everywhere, the smell of gas occasionally. And, I mean, people just wailing and crying. And this was just the beginning. At this point, it was impossible to comprehend just how devastating what had just happened was. Amidst all of this, the aftershocks started. And it was still a really foggy day. But now the ground was covered everywhere with snow. And we were all just so frightened that at any point in time, another large earthquake might happen. So we started heading down valley and a helicopter passed quickly overhead. And I thought, oh, good. They, um, they will have seen all the damage and so help's going to be coming really soon. Someone's checked in and everything's going to be okay. So after a couple of hours of trekking, we were just approaching the ridge above Langtang Village there was a building and I'd paid no attention to it whatsoever when we trekked up valley the day beforehand. It was a single-storey building, quite large, brand new, but not finished. I learnt later that it was meant as some kind of a new hospital or something for the army, but at the moment it was a solid building and it was close and so we headed toward it before we headed toward the ridgeline above the village And there were lots of people gathered there. Some of them had made fires already. And one of the first people I saw as I approached was Mick. Mick was an Englishman Athena and Nairi had been leapfrogging with on the way up to Kanjangompa. And I just remember rushing up to him. I'd been so frightened that something had happened to him and his friends because they had planned to hike that morning and they'd planned to go up Kanjangri directly above Kanjangompa. And they had attempted to hike that morning. But the weather was so foggy they turned around. And as they were approaching Langtang Village, the earthquake and then the avalanche struck. Somehow Mick and his friends managed to survive. All the people up at Kanjingomba thought, oh God, it's terrible here. We'll go down to Langtang because it's a proper village and there'll be everything there. So the first straggling trekkers arrived an hour later, two hours later. There was a French girl, she came, and I'd given up smoking for about four months then, and she had a cigarette, so I, I just had to scrounge one. I remember coming back from basically getting some dirty, melted snow that we were going to try and boil up, and I just heard someone go, Mickey, and he told me later, no one's called me that in decades. <laughs> but I was just so relieved that he and his friends were all there. And he said, have you seen it? Have you seen it yet? And I said, no, we just got here. And he said, it's gone. And that still didn't make any sense until I did walk to the ridge above where the village had been and there was nothing there. This place where well over 300 people had lived and tourists had been staying and passing through all of those 
tea houses and cheese factory and and the monastery, it was just gone. There was just a sheet of dirty white snow that stretched across the entire plain where the village had been. And that Langtang River that we'd been hearing the sound of for days was completely quiet. It was covered with so much debris you couldn't hear a sound. And there was just nothing there. They were stuck. Landslips had carried huge portions of the path away. Aftershocks meant rockfalls were frequent. Everything was unstable. So they set up camp in the hospital. The the blast was so powerful. I I read later it was, um, I think one article had the blast down, the equivalent of half the Hiroshima bomb. That's what they likened it to. The roof had been ripped clean off. So there was all this timber around. There, There were these locals turning up, shaking, crying, the kids were in a state, people were bleeding and stuff. So the first thing I thought, well, just light some fires, because it was a miserable day as well, it was all grey. Athena and Nairi were now safe, but they still only had the clothes on their backs. I got them to come and sit in my little group, which kept getting bigger. And as more people turned up, we just got more fires going. But nobody would go into the building because I was scared. There was this little voice inside my head that was just remembering that helicopter that had passed us on the way down. I was saying, don't worry, because tomorrow the rescue will come. You know, that helicopter saw how serious this is, and tomorrow the rescue will be here. You know, you're out of your depth here, and someone's going to come along and make sure that all of you are safe. When we woke up on our second morning, we really started to band together a lot more with the people that we had met on the way up Valley. Mick and his friends were very generous. So the second night, we, we fucked up a bit because they brought the German guy up and we, we put him, I've made a nice little room for us, you know, basically by resting corrugated iron from one window thing to another and, you know, built, built it so it was dry not not comfortable by any means, but dry at least, and had a fire in the corner. But we thought, well, we'll put him in there. Later in the evening, the French lot who had made their little group, if you like, <laughs> it became a bit of a question of nationalities. The French group basically felt a bit sorry for him being on his own because he, I think he had had his, his he'd broken his arm and maybe leg. So they carried him into their bit, and these Nepalese lads who had just turned up nicked our bit, if you like. So that second night was awful. Me, Nairi and Athena sat on these benches in this tiny little room, which would have been designed as some sort of cupboard, I suppose, for storage. It had a window and we basically were awake all night. And of course, your nerves are shot, so you don't, you can't have a doze during the day. You just don't, you, you think you're going to get picked up. That's the thing. Filling the days while you're waiting seems impossible but there was time to be meeting the other people we were there. We spent a lot of time collecting wood or breaking up window frames as turned out to make the best fuel for our fires. There was water to be collected from far across on the mountainside. One of the few things she still had was her camera. So she took photos of everything the survivors, animals who had died from the disasters, even a fight which broke out over tins of mackerel. 
Taking photos was another way of keeping her mind and her hands busy. Otherwise, we just spent our time watching the skies. The occasional small helicopter was able to come up and land, but could only take four or five people at a time. And of course, the highest priority, people who were injured or people with children. Every morning that I woke up while we were stranded above Langtang Village, I woke up with hope. Every single day was an opportunity where something might change for us. And holding onto that hope was the only way to get through that day. I think it took me three days stuck up there on the mountains to really start to feel what had happened. It was that day that Athena learnt that a person she met on the hike, a German woman she and Nairi had talked with, had died, leaving behind her husband and child. I remember walking over to look out over the view of where Langtang Village had been. And by this stage, so much of the snow had melted, you could actually see some of the outlines where there'd been fields and rubble from the houses poking through. And I felt this absolute frustration and futility and desperation and anger welling up in me, just this intensity of so many feelings that I'd been pushing down for the previous three days just start to bubble up toward the surface. And... I wasn't sure what to do with them because feeling them didn't change the situation that I was finding myself stuck in. Four days after the earthquake, I was over at the mountainside trying, mostly in vain, to collect water to bring back to camp. And at that stage, we'd had so little water and so little food that even making that slow walk over to the mountainside was incredibly tiring. I'd need three or four rests along the way. But there I was trying to slowly drip some water into my water bottle when a helicopter made a quick pass up above the ridge over the top of our building, seemed to land and then took off again immediately. And I was furious. I thought, this is some media person coming and looking at us and delivering no help whatsoever. I actually picked up rocks and threw them. I think I might have screamed into the void a little bit because I was so frustrated at that point that there just seemed to be no end to this experience that we were all trapped in. But a few minutes later when I made my way back up to the ridge, someone let me know, there's a man here. I thought, what do you mean there's a man here? People don't just drop in, but there he was. A guy in shorts, wearing a North Face jumper and talking on a satellite phone. An Israeli rescuer who informed us that the next day we were going to be rescued. And if the weather was fine, if the clouds didn't come down too early, the next morning we were all going to be out of there. The moment they closed the doors and sealed the first group of us into that big belly military helicopter, everybody cheered. We were so elated so excited and then the rotor started spooling and we began to take off and everyone's faces fell I think it really set in for all of us that there was always a level of privilege for having been a person who'd come from outside and was also hoping to leave whereas 
other people were going to be stuck in that place, in that situation, with the fallout of those disasters long after we'd left. The chapter was over, but we weren't really sure what we were headed into after that point. And for a lot of people, the enormity of what we'd just been to really started to hit home too. Once we'd arrived in Dunche, which is where we'd been airlifted to, I turned and saw Una rushing towards me with a phone in her hand. I think I just said, hi, Mama. Um, To which she responded, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going outside your door. Today's story was reported by Monica O'Hanlon. You can find a link to Athena's photos on the Days Like These website. Thanks for listening to Days Like These. I love hearing your thoughts on the show and getting to hear stories from you about the biggest day in your life. Keep them coming. You can send us an email or a voice memo. Our address is dayslikethese at abc.net.au. You can follow us on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app so that you never miss a Days Like These episode when it drops. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review. We love hearing what you think and it helps new people to find the show. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Coolass. Today's episode was reported by Monica O'Hanlon. Our lead reporter is Pat Abud. Sound design by Monica O'Hanlon and Angie Grant. The supervising producer was Megan Loder. Our Series 4 executive producers are Rachel Fountain, Sophie Townsend and Ian Walker. Our theme song is Yeah Nah by the Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. See you next week. Next time on Days Like These, a Cold War thriller set in Sydney, an ASIO intelligence officer, a KGB agent gone rogue, and a surveillance operation that goes very, very wrong. And it was... It was... It was a, a grim and grotesque act. It To me, it was like, you don't need to go this far, but for some reason, he thought, yep, let's... He was all in. And then Sergey pulled out a $50 bill and handed it to her and got on stage and then dropped his trousers. He was not the fittest man on earth. He had, well, let's just say he had plenty of fat for the winter. And yeah, that's a vision that you're not going to get out of your mind anytime soon. That's next week on Days Like These. And while you're waiting for that, why not take a listen to another ABC podcast like this one? Conversations. Well into Bass Strait, seas continued to build. Spend an hour in the life of someone else. And I took my life jacket off. Someone who's seen and done 
remarkable things. This tremendous roar and then this large crash and the boat was literally picked up and thrown upside down 180 degrees. Follow on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.